All right, so we are <clears throat> in the easiest and most fun of the Advent sermons we are planning for this Advent season. And it's all about waiting for justice in and through the story of Tamar. Even more than having to tackle this passage, I've got some anxiety about tackling the concept and even the topic of justice because there are a few words or conversations, to put it lightly, in our culture that are as fraught with baggage as this one. Whatever agreement we had over what is justice or what injustice is or which justice and injustice should be applied in a given situation, whatever agreement we had shared in that disappeared almost overnight over the last several years, and it feels like as a society, and this includes within the church as well, we've been arguing over it ever since. That said, we still share three beliefs in common. This might actually be part of the problem here. We all agree and believe these same three things. A, that this conversation, this topic of justice is of ultimate importance and everything is on the line with it. B, we're all certain that we see what is and isn't just with perfect clarity. And C, any who don't see it as we do are complicit, if not dangerous, in that injustice as well. If you're not part of the problem, you're part of the solution, right? So, all that said, I'd like to lead with two things. One, please don't cancel me. I'm kidding, but also really don't, please. This reinforces actually the fact that I'm saying that. I say it because I want to reinforce the value of what Michael said about the Q&A, which is that if we can't have a conversation about hard things, awkward things, difficult things, gut-wrenching, painful things, if we can't do that within the body and bride of Christ where grace is to be the definition of who we are as a people and as individuals, then where else can we go? The freedom to ask those questions and not worry about how we are being interpreted is actually extremely important and vital. I, if you're wondering, I do this all the time with other pastor friends. For example, I was sending uh, to several friends who are pastors uh, the following text and trying to like, you know, as I'm preparing for this, like, hey, what's, what's the opposite of woke but not MAGA because I want it to be about the similarly narrow sense of justice in the way that we use that word. I'm trying to figure out a pithy non-political term that doesn't need a whole lot of explanation but could describe the rights version of the same kind of self-righteous approach to justice. Any ideas? And it's great that I have the freedom to ask that of other pastors and friends, and it was super helpful to do so right up until the time that I accidentally texted it to our neighborhood group text. I wish I were kidding and that that were a joke. So if you're like, I wonder if I, I don't want to ask this question because this could be hard and awkward. I just want you to know not that much, okay? Number two, if you are hoping this morning that I am going to solve the problem of like what is justice and everything, I want you to know that I'm sorry, I don't think that's even possible. But if anything, I'm, I'm going to, I hope, further complicate it for you. Because you can't help but read the text that, <laughs> that Michael read and think like, wow, this is really clear and easy. 
By the way, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's an explanation of like everything that God intended in creation, then why everything is not like how he intended, and the various expressions of how wrong it is. In other words, how unjust of a world we live in. And there is a weird kind of comfort, I guess, in the fact that, wow, it's kind of like watching uh, you know, an episode of Jerry Springer. You can read this and actually feel a lot better about the things that you're dealing with, right? Some of you don't know who Jerry Springer is. It's a talk show. Just like this, paternity attests are, are big reveals, and, and it's a big deal, and it's just a whole thing, okay? But it's actually even more, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Genesis, it's actually even more complicated and messy and dramatic and just ugly than the part that we read, especially knowing a little bit about Judah in his life, right? Because Judah, more than anyone else in, this, in the passage that we read this morning, Judah should know better. Judah knows God, has, has experienced and knows what God's covenantal promises to his family have been, and he knows, he should know, that there is no way that God would take from his family any ability to pass along his family's name. So when his, he was worried about and fearing for his third son, he was not expressing much faith or trust in God's providence. He was actually acting out of anxiety and fear. But he also experienced injustice himself, right? Uh, tra traumatic people traumatize people, right? There's this idea that when we experience hurt, it is very easy to pass along that hurt. And the people in the Bible are no different from us in that sense. Because Judah's father, Jacob, was not the firstborn. He was not the inheritant, the, the, the person who's supposed to inherit uh, his father's legacy, Jacob stole from his brother Esau his birthright. Stole it from him. While, while his father was on his deathbed, he dressed up and tried to, because he, was, he wasn't able to see very well at the time. His eyesight was failing him. And he dressed up as his brother and fooled him, lied to him, so that when he gave his blessing, he thought he was giving it to Esau instead of to Jacob. He passed along a similar toxic favoritism uh, to, to Jacob, who then saw as his favorite Joseph. Have any of you seen uh, the, the musical Joseph in the, or yeah, Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Cool. If you don't, you probably, I haven't, heard, I haven't seen it either, but I'm familiar with it because I actually, when I first read this, uh, the, that passage in the Bible, I was like, oh, that's what that's from. Cool. Anyway, he, f he favored. That, that dream coat, that, that, uh, that, that cloak was a symbol of the office and he was passing along his inheritance to another son who was not the oldest and Judah became jealous of Joseph. He became so jealous that he lied to him, deceived him, had him uh, meet him and his other brothers in a place where he fell into a bear pit and then trapped him there and sold him into slavers, uh, sold him to slavers who were passing by. He then took that cloak, smeared goat's blood on it, and went back to his father and said, your son, your favorite son, Joseph, is dead. I mean, that's jacked up. <laughs> that is wicked and evil. And he afterward, it says that he fled to Canaan. So he fled to the place. By the way, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard me talk about how uh, if you fast forward down the line, uh, because this is taking place before, it's kind of out of order chronologically, um, 
how terrible and unjust of a place Canaan became over the years. And so when he flees to Canaan, this is giving us a, a, a hint and a signal foreshadowing that this is very much along the lines of his pattern of blame shifting and avoiding responsibility. What a miserable situation and context to be married into if you're Tamar, right? She needed a breakthrough, and we get the hint. We get this beautiful picture of her actually receiving it because the name of her first son, Perez, means breakthrough. She needed God to break through for her in a big way, and God does, not just for her, but also for Judah. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning is this breakthrough. Tamar's breakthrough in the passage that we just read is righteousness, and it's beautiful. See, Tamar, let's talk about her story a little bit, right? Because every story is in the context of a bigger story. It doesn't matter whose story we're talking about. Her story probably includes being about 15 years old when she was first married, and she very quickly became a widow two times over. And in that culture, she would not have been seen as someone who has just had some bad luck with some terrible guys that she dated. She would have been seen as damaged goods, if not cursed. She was extremely vulnerable, and maybe most vulnerable in the class of people who is most vulnerable in the ancient Near East. So much so that there was a tradition, a cultural uh, kind of value called the, the Leverite marriage. And this was, this was very common in the Middle East. And it's this idea that if your husband died, his brother-in-law would marry you, just like we saw in, in Genesis 38, and provide for his brother an heir. In other words... It would be it was a it was a, a an assurance and a safety measure both for the legacy of the of the one who died because it was the most important thing for this culture, but also as a to give a an innocent, undeserving widow who had nothing to do with their their husband's death, a, a protector and a provider in a culture in a brutal world that was just not it was just not gonna happen otherwise. And I know that's weird and kind of bizarre for us because I know some of you are thinking about like, if you're, if you're a woman in this room, I don't know how you wouldn't think about your brother-in-law if you have a brother-in-law and being like, well, what would that, what would that be like? And I just want to save you of any uh, weirdness that like, you don't have to worry about that. That was resolved in the New Testament. It's not a thing anymore. Don't worry. That's not where I'm going in this, okay? So let me just do that, okay? However, it was included in, in Scripture, Actually, it's part of the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 5 because God understood that his people would need a, a provision for those without the status or means to provide for themselves. And so this is a good thing. If it's weird and awkward, that's just a cultural leap for us, okay? Now, Onan, the second son, who was charged with this responsibility, his actions were even more wicked and ugly and unjust than it seems on the surface, and it seems pretty unjust on the surface, right? Onan um, knew that the way inheritance worked in his day and age and place was that if you had, if there were three sons, for example, the way the inheritance would work is um, 
the, the father, the patriarch, his, all of his wealth and possessions and everything would be divided not into three shares, but four shares. And then the first son would get two of those shares. So they got the way, the, the majority, not the majority, but at least the plurality of the inheritance. And so with his brother alive, he would, be, he would stand to have a quarter of the inheritance, Onan would, um, if he provided an heir with Tamar. But if he didn't provide an heir with Tamar, that means his brother's line was dead. And instead of having four shares divided three ways with them getting one, he would actually be divided into three across two brothers. So he would go from a quarter of an inheritance to two-thirds. This wasn't just him using Tamar for his own sexual gratification and not fulfilling his responsibility in Leverite marriage. This was actually him making a shameless money grab at his brother's legacy and betraying him even after he's dead in the grave. You gotta be like, you gotta be pretty awful for God to be like, you're done. Dead. It doesn't happen very often, okay? It happens to both of them. That gives you a sense of what Tamar was being subjected to in this family in general. And if they're willing to do that to one another, you can imagine the experience she must have been going through. Now, it is important to know that, that when Genesis was written, the original audience, so Israel, who lived after this time, after Israel was in the promised land, when this was transcribed from oral history, the original audience would have been as, even, as furious, maybe more furious than we are to read about Tamar's treatment. Right? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, like at the very beginning of the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. I mean, this, this principle, this idea of caring for widows and orphans is, is throughout Scripture. And by the way, if anybody uh, within the evangelical church tells you that it's not, they are lying to you or blind themselves, Okay. It is there, it is important, it is good. So much so that anyone reading, like the point of this is to shock the reader. You should be appalled at this. Tamar was a victim in every way. But what's incredible about the way she responded to it is the, is, is the reaction it provokes in Judah. In verse 26 of what we read, Judah says, in response to her confrontation, then Judah identified them, these, these symbols of his office, and said, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. Her breakthrough is righteousness, but the word that we translate as righteous is the word, Hebrew word zedek. It's also translated as justice. In Scripture, justice and righteousness are two sides of the same coin. So after, if, if, let me ask this question. If Judah is, is that terrible, how could he say that? Why did he say she is more righteous than I? Is it because Tamar is, is you know, is it because he recognized that Tamar is just because she's a victim in this situation and therefore blameless for how she handled everything? Or is it because Judah understood that he was worse and he's actually at fault for the situation and put her in that situation in the first place? The short answer is not 
Not really. Those things are true, but that's not why he said it. He said it for three reasons. And these three reasons are, <laughs> they range from kind of easier for hear, us to hear and harder for us to hear. The first is this. God recognizes that to live in a fallen and broken world means that we are perpetually in a place of having to figure out how to live in a catch-22. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 14, this is amazing. Um, I did, before studying this passage, I did not realize that this was so explicitly connected. Hosea says, quoting God, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore. By the way, if you're like, Scripture's really boring, I don't get it. Why is this so interesting? I mean, this is, there's no beating around the bush here, right? I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. It is hard not to, to think that God has Tamar's story in mind here. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. I, we need to sit in how significant this is because this is, this is Judah, one of the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, telling a Canaanite, a Canaanite woman, she is more righteous than I. And he's doing so because she was more faithful to his own son through Leverite marriage than he was to his own son through blood as his father. Righteousness and justice have a relational component to them. He's saying, especially here, that she was far more faithful to Onan and to Ur than he was. Never mind to her. Right? In other words, this is one of those situations. Have you, how many of you have heard the trolley, uh, the trolley dilemma? If you haven't heard that phrase, you probably have heard the situation. You're, you come across, right, there's a trolley, it's a runaway trolley, and it's headed for uh, running over and killing five people, and you, can, you have the ability to flip a switch, and instead of killing five, it only kills one. Do you flip the switch? Okay? This is the kind of situation that Tamar was placed in, and she flipped the sit, switch because faithfulness was such a such a more important thing than the deceit that she used to carry out the faithfulness. She was given no choice. Now, okay, that's the first reason why it's not quite that easy and it's going to get harder. So here's number two. She pursued justice, but she never confused it with vengeance. Did you note in the story that Tamar never at any point tried even to punish Judah. She wisely gave Judah enough rope to hang himself, for sure, but the narrative re is very clear that she never took that justice into her own hands. It was actually his sin that, that invited the judgment upon himself. Lastly, here's the best part, and it's kind of connected to number two, but it, is, it deserves its own place. To wait for justice... And the, the primary reason why Tamar is included in Jesus' genealogy is to bring in the reality that waiting for justice means to be proactively vulnerable. It is a vulnerable thing. Tamar's response, her pursuing 
a, an heir for her first husband, Ur, was not about self-protection. It was about faithfulness. And in doing so, she risked even greater injustice upon herself, right? Because she had zero evidence. There is no evidence in Genesis up to this point. There is no evidence whatsoever that Judah was going to be like, oh, you were right. I'm sorry, I messed up. Like, this is not, there, nothing, if anything, the exact opposite. Now, she wisely took steps to mitigate, right, because the, the, his signet and his rod and staff, like, this was the equivalent of saying, like, yeah, give me your wallet with your driver's license, credit card, and social security card, right? So she was taking whatever actions she could to protect herself, and that was wisdom for sure. It is not a naive vulnerability or a blindly trusting vulnerability, but it was one that she took upon herself. It's incredible. Tamar held up a mirror in doing, these th in doing it this way, in waiting for justice in this way, which was not passive. She holds up a mirror to Judah's heart by allowing hers to be publicly questioned. And doing so affected nothing short of a cosmic-scale transformation. This is what's really incredible, is, is, is how much justice, her waiting for justice, actually effectuated. And this is in Judah's breakthrough, which is transformation. Okay, Now, there is, there's so much irony in this passage. It's, it's, it's rich. It really is. For example... In going to uh, Timnah, this place where he's going with his, his goat shearers or, or what have you, the, the, the place of Timnah, that name is translated as to see, to have opened eyes. And yet, while he was going toward a place called opened eyes, he was blind both to Tamar's identity and true identity and his own sin and complicity in it. In fact, we see how devastatingly true that is uh, when he gets the news that she's pregnant, um, when it says to take her or, or, or arrest her and, and burn her. It's only two words. It's take, burn. They're forceful words. They're even, maybe even violent words because to burn someone, by, to, by, to, to execute someone by burning it's not like, well, they were uncivilized way back then. No, even then, they would not, that would have not, that would have been extreme. That was a very hateful means of killing someone. It was torturous. Her vulnerability provoked his hypocrisy, and he, in his blindness to his own sin, was excited for the excuse to back out of his own covenantal responsibilities and commitment. He was excited and relieved that somebody else could be the scapegoat and take the blame. It's like him saying, I knew it. This just confirms my bias and my priors. And while she is being dragged to this kind of kangaroo court, she says just one word, even more, shall I say, impolite than his, and it is ha-krana. Ha-krana. It means recognize. It's kind of similar to behold, but it's very forceful. It's not like an invitational thing. It's a, no, you better recognize this. 
He's, she's saying, don't just recognize the symbol of your office and the property that you gave me to entrust that you would actually make payment here. Also, recognize your own hypocrisy. Recognize your double standard. Hakranah, your selfish avoidance of how this is your doing. Hakranah, that you are about to cross a point of no return and commit a, f- a crime far greater than mine. The irony is tragic, too. It's not just rich. This would have been some serious deja vu for Judah because when he went to his father, Jacob, to show him the, quote-unquote, evidence of Joseph's death, being mauled by a bear with goat's blood on his, his cloak, the word, the word that Judah introduces it with is ha-kranah. Recognize your son is dead. But it was a lie where this was true. When David, as we talked about um, a few Sundays ago in our Advent series, when he was blind and blinded by his sin, but blind to his sin in enforcing the wife of one of his best friends to sleep with him, and then to have him murdered to cover it up. When he was blind to that, Samuel had someone go to him to tell a story that wasn't true. It was a parable about injustice. And David said, take, burn the person who is responsible for this. Samuel says, ha krana." Recognize that it's you. You are the perpetrator in this parable. So when Judah is saying, she is more righteous than I, what he is saying in that moment is he's recognizing the totality of his sin and in humble, broken, honest confession, he's saying, I am the one you should take burn. This actually becomes a lens. This is such a pivotal turning point for the entire history of God's people. I can't overstate this, actually, because when after chapter 38, it, the, the narrative shifts, and it goes back to Joseph, who was sold into slavery, spent time in prison, and just by telling the truth and being faithful, is eventually elevated to become the second in command to Pharaoh. So instead of the favored son... Of Jacob, he becomes the second in command to Pharaoh, and in so doing, is in the place that when a famine hits the land where his family lives, they come south to him, and he finds Judah and his brothers before him in Pharaoh's court, begging for aid and assistance. They don't recognize him. Once again, Judah's blind. And when Joseph insists that their youngest brother, Benjamin, who was not born at the time that Joseph was sold into slavery, when, they ins- when he insists on keeping Benjamin in- as collateral, listen to what Judah says in response. He says, now therefore, please let your servant, and speaking of himself, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. 
he's already seen the evil that has found his father because that is exactly what he did to Joseph, the one he doesn't recognize and is speaking to in that moment. And guess what Joseph says in reply? Ha krana, don't you recognize me? Don't you recognize that I am the brother that you left behind and sold into slavery? After everything, there is, there is no reason for Judah, with all of his wickedness, all of his injustice, everything he kept doing and, 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 and kicking the ball further down the road, there is nothing that, is, would, that even remotely explains his transformation except Tamar. She did that. It was, it was her courage that showed, her, showed him his sin and then God used to reunite everything. God uses Tamar to shock Judah awake to his own evil, but in order to restore and not destroy him, which is an incredible mercy, right? In doing so, God uses Tamar to redeem Judah's crime against Joseph, which had happened before all of this, this the narrative that we read in, in chapter 38 happened. He used that to backfill redemption, into the story. But not only that, he then uses it to rescue and reunite an utterly broken family. And oh, by the way, when God promises Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make your descendants numbers as many sand in the sea and, and, and stars in the sky, and that they will spend time in Egypt, and then I will rescue them. And all of this, God uses it to further the greatest story ever written. He uses and includes Tamar in, the most, in, one of the, in, in what is probably the most unlikely of redemptions yet experienced in the story of Scripture to that point. Tamar held up a mirror to Judah, but in including her in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew is inviting us to look in the mirror as well if we have the honesty and the courage to look. And this is my last point. We're going to talk about our breakthrough. Because waiting for justice is freaking hard. I mean, it, this is, that's my summer statement. You can quote me. It's freaking hard, okay? It hurts. It hurts a lot. Because it requires, and it, if, for many reasons, but it requires, because, especially because it requires and cultivates a merciful Humility. The word justice and as a topic is so fraught in part because we read this story and we think we're Tamar and not Judah. It's hard because we think we see so clearly and we are so unaware of the biases that we bring to the table and pun intended. We don't even realize it, ironically. I mean, illustrate this. Um, how many of you, are you guys familiar with Hidden Brain? It's an NPR, uh, what's the, it's a, it's a part of NPR. It's a production of NPR, right? They have an amazing podcast as well. And um, there's one from about a year and a half ago, I remember I said, I'm happy to send this to you if you want, just text me in the Q&A number. Um, there's a podcast episode called Virtuous Victimhood. 
And it's about this study that was done with a control group where they told two different stories and, and, and polled people for their responses. And one of the things that they found that was so fascinating was that if you gave no description whatsoever or comment about the virtue of, the, of a victim in this story, it was assumed that, that person, by virtue of being a victim, they would be seen as more righteous than any other person in the, in the parable that they're telling them. That we just kind of equate victim with virtue. Gee, I wonder why that is. Could it be because we live in a culture that's been shaped by 1,500 years about a, the, that by a faith of the only righteous one being unjustly persecuted and killed on our behalf and executed on our behalf? I wonder... I wonder if that might have something to do with it. Let me be clear. We should have that default. That should be our predisposition. That's actually a legacy of Christianity that we can and should affirm. And Tamar was not, she was not righteous because she was a victim of injustice. She was righteous because she was faithful in her waiting. Remember, I said, please don't cancel me. Okay. Dr. Martin Luther King, when asked why he pursued a, an approach to civil rights of nonviolence, he says, um, there's the quote. He says, here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence. When it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. The pursuit of humility required, produced mercy. But note in his quote, that he's saying that the aim and the goal isn't actually mercy itself, it's humility. Because we need our enemy. We need the opposition. We need a mirror held up in front of us, whether we know it or not. That is incredible. And very, very Christian. One of his favorite passages to quote was Micah 6.8, especially when talking about the importance of nonviolence. He says, it, it, Micah says to Israel, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Judah's justice, because make no mistake, he thought it was justice to take burn. It was without mercy and therefore not justice because he was not walking humbly with the Lord. He fled the Lord by going to Canaan. Remember, that's where we started. That was the foreshadowing. He did... That's the root. That is the root. Who do you say, who provokes from you, take burn? And I ask that knowing in this, you may be right. You may be right in identifying an injustice, whether it's a, it's a far injustice as, as it's something that happened to somebody else or a near injustice that has happened to you. What makes you say, take burn? And how might God be using them 
like he used Tamar with Judah to say, Hakranah, to look in the mirror and to wake up to your own blind spots because that's what makes it a blind spot. By definition, you can't know that you have it. You need somebody else to hold up a mirror to help you to see it. And even if that is done unkindly, it doesn't mean it's inaccurate and not needed. This, this is what makes Christianity radical, guys. We can affirm all kinds of things about justice and mercy in our culture, but when you divorce it from the humility of walking with the Lord, downstream it gets ugly because nobody is sufficient for both justice and mercy. We can't. It's too big. It's too impossible. It's too, we're too wounded. We're too sinful. We're too compromised. We're too blind like Judah. We need someone else. Thank God we have him. See, let me, let me, I'll end here and we'll do the Q&A. And I re, I, seriously, I meant what I said when I said, like, you can bring your questions, okay? I want to affirm, we all want to be declared just and righteous like Tamar. We want to hear someone say, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to do the right thing, even when we don't know what it is. And we especially want to hear it from our unjust accuser. There's no but here. That is a good thing we should desire. Okay? My concern, and this is the difference humility makes, a merciful humility that says, if exacting justice from those you see as unrighteous, real or perceived, matters more than hearing it declared over you by the only truly righteous one, welcome. Because that is the human condition. And if there was hope for Judah's blindness, there is hope for ours as well. And I want you to hear, even as we are being not just held up a mirror so that we can reflect on ourselves, but maybe even being tenderized by this, I want you to hear that that is actually, I mean, in ways that may not, be, not, may not feel like good news, actually, um, that's all of us, okay? Tomorrow's inclusion in Jesus' genealogy is to say so many things, but it is to say at least that this is not just justice for Tamar or individuals, right? Because Tamar was given, actually, let me put it this way. By the way, if you can't tell, I really struggled with how to end the sermon, okay? Because there's so much to say, and I know I'm leaving so much unsaid, and it kills me because I know that's not helpful, okay? And I hope that you hear any hesitancy on my part or trying to find the words as this is actually too big for any one sermon, and it's also too good for any one individual. Because so often when we talk about justice, we are talking about the individual Wait, the individual waiting that we have to go through, but it compares, nothing compares to the collective waiting for justice that is humanity groaning as in the pains of childbirth for this world to be made new. And what Tamar's inclusion in the genealogy tells us is that that renewal is on its way. And that at Christmas, it came. And that we don't have to wait for the, the spiritual renewal that that Tamar did not have and could not have possibly known was coming. 
that God is breaking through, that Christmas is God perezing. It is God coming himself to break through our hard-heartedness and tell us that actually I have a bigger definition of justice than you do. I have a bigger definition of peace than you do. And I agree with you, no justice, no peace. Which is why I will go to the cross on your behalf and pay for the injustice you have visited upon each other for millennia. And I'm going to call that grace. And that's the peace that we get when we sing about the Prince of Peace come on Christmas Day. That is our anchor and our hope. And in a sense, we are not waiting like Tamar had to wait. We have that. We have someone greater than Judah who has declared us righteous. If you are a Christian, you need to know that you have the freedom to say, I've been unrighteous, because Jesus' statement of who you are as righteous supersedes that. So you can hear anything and everything that you might need to in order to repent. (laughs) It's a freedom. It's not a burden. It's a burden. You know what I mean, okay? But we also have someone better than Tamar, who doesn't say ha krana by holding up our sin against us. Jesus says ha krana by holding himself up in the place of ours to take our sin on him. He is not a mirror. He is a diamond who absorbs and refracts our light and pushes out, our, refracts our sin to reflect and refract his light back toward us. I can't say everything that I want to, okay? What I'm trying to communicate and where I'm going to land the plane and move on to the Q&A, I promise, is that if the enormity of the, of the injustice that we see in the world does not humble you and make you think, I don't have a clue how to fix this. I need, we need someone to fix this for us then it doesn't matter how we define justice apart from that because we will have, we lack the posture necessary from the very beginning. All right. Let's handle a couple questions. No, it's fine. It's great. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine different people so far. Cool. I'm going to pick one. Tamar used deceit in order to be faithful. Is it righteous to use deceit as a means to an end in this way? Okay, look. Um, this is one of those passages that really a lot smarter than people and I, than I have debated and looked into all of the Hebrew and still disagree. Okay? What I think is, I can confidently say and answer this question, is that we need to get past the binaries of thinking about either, dis- either honesty or faithfulness and ask which one should inform the other. Because you can be honest and selfish. You can be honest and blunt and just say things and un- be uncaring to the relationship you're in with someone. And you can say, you can be faithful and that will be, include being honest. It must include being honest, Okay. I think at least what we can say is what Judah did, which is Tamar was m- far more righteous than he was. Beyond that, I'm, I, I'm not going to say, okay? Uh, the paternity test reveals more... We, <laughs> the paternity test revelations were more than Maury Povich, so than Jerry Springer 
Hashtag I love the 90s. Thank you for your contribution. <laughs> Technically accurate, okay. Um, does extending mercy and recognizing our own hypocrisy mean forsaking seeking justice? I can see myself as Tamar and Judah in the story, but how do we become the ones who extend the mirror? Whew, okay, let me read this again. Does extending mercy and recognizing our own hypocrisy mean forsaking seeking justice? No. It's actually a prerequisite. But it's how we, it's, it is how we prevent our justice be, from becoming vengeance or just visiting and exchanging one victim for another. Because God doesn't say to do justice or love mercy. He says to do justice and love mercy and seek and, and walk humbly with the Lord, okay? When we favor one another, we should be very self-suspicious of our motives, okay? I can see myself as Tamar and Judah in the story, but how do we become the ones who extend the mirror? By applying it to yourself first. It doesn't preclude you from extending the mirror, Tamar never, something I didn't notice and I'm kicking myself until Michael read the passage was that she takes off her, the, the, the veil of mourning before she does this. And then she puts it back on when she's done. I think not to overapply something that doesn't apply, but I think it is good that we should not be seeking to hold up a mirror until we are in a place that we can, we can wear a veil of mourning before and after. I think we need to be able to grieve the injustice and also the place that that puts the perpetrator in because it's harming the perpetrator as well, okay? And I think that's what it means to have mercy. So unless we're... Don't wait until that, but pursue it co concurrently, okay? And repent when you're not grieving for everybody involved. All right, I've gone way long. I'm very sorry, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get to these tomorrow uh, morning and text you if you submitted a question, okay? Whew. Michael, save me here, let me pray. Jesus, um, this, is this world is messy. And also this world is not fair. Sometimes this world sucks. Sometimes it is painful. And sometimes there is a holy discontent and even anger that we can and should feel when we encounter that brokenness and that injustice. Lord, help us not avoid that anger and frustration because there is a very real aspect of that that is good. And that is especially true when it is our own wounds that we are grieving. And Lord, help us to understand justice in the light of your mercy, that you did not need to humble yourself to the point of becoming one of your creation or to go humble yourself to the, death, to death, to the point of death, to becoming even going to the cross. Lord, and you did out of your mercy. You refused to choose justice or mercy and that is our hope of transformation. That is our hope of redemption. So Lord, walk with us in and through that. Help us, your church, be, be what we need in the midst of it. And help us to see that you declare us to be righteous, 
that you declared that you were not finished with this world yet and that you are making even now all things new. Amen.